If you're gonna play in Texas, you gotta have a fiddle in the band. That lead guitar is hot, but not for Louisiana man. So rolls enough that both are faded love and let's all dance. If you're gonna play in Texas, you gotta have a fiddle in the band. Davis, to step up in the pocket, gonna heave it for the end zone, and it is caught! It's caught! It's a touchdown, Whitley! Going to throw. Throws back. He's on the end. He's in the end. If you're going to play in Texas, you got to have a fiddle in the band. That lead guitar is hot, but not for Louisiana man. So rolls enough that. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to a special edition of Clear Eyes, Full Hearts. Today, we are dedicating an entire show to the huge matchup between the number five Denton Geyer Wildcats and the number four, Atascacita Eagles. Now, this is a big 7-1-3 versus the Metroplex argument, a Houston-Dallas, if you will, I-45 battle-ish. So, not, and we talked to Denton Geyer's head coach earlier today, and you'll hear from him here in a minute on the show about how they're kind of playing into you got to rep your city and having fun with it, trying to build up the playoff atmosphere which every time Houston, big Houston schools play big Dallas area and Fort Worth schools, you can kind of get that vibe. Tobin, what's your thoughts? Yeah, I love this Houston versus Dallas rivalry. I think when I really got into it was that North Shore and Duncanville matchup a couple years ago in the state championship and just how big of a deal that was. And I guess I never really realized how big of a rivalry that was in pro sports as well. And now I see the Mavs and the Rockets and the Astros and the Rangers, and I've really grown to love that rivalry. I'm not necessarily a fan of any of those teams, but anytime they play, it's much must-watch TV just because it has grown so much. One of the things that I thought was really cool, and we, you know, we'll get into more detail with Coach Webb about this, is these two teams won't see each other again, but it's a playoff atmosphere pre-district. And so it's going to be rocking, and they're playing at UNT, and that stadium is going to be absolutely packed. And I wish I could be there, but I cannot wait to follow along during the game. Yeah, so getting into the game this week, we're going to start over on the Atascacita side. So far this season, the Eagles have beat up on a couple of Klein schools in Klein Oak and Klein Collins. But sandwiched in between those two games was a huge road win against the Allen Eagles on their home turf. Atascacita snapped Allen's 122 regular season home game winning streak. And they headed back down I-45 with a three-touchdown win over Coach Chad Morris and the Allen Eagles when it was all said and done. As far as who to watch and and what they do on offense and everything, when it comes to Tascacita, the Eagles' offense, everything starts up front with them. They're able to do a lot of different things on offense due to the size and versatility of their offensive line. Number 79 and 75, they go 6'2 and 6'4 respectfully. Number 75 is five-star offensive tackle Cam Dewberry. The 315-pound senior is getting recruited all over the country, just like his predecessor, number also five-star offensive line teammate Kenyon Green, who is now an All-American at Texas A&M. And it looks like there could be a three – I guess that would be a three-peat going on because yeah. now – and I'm not 100% sure because Atascacita's roster is a little bit jacked up, so – 
That's why I'm going by numbers more than his, names. His name is his name's Nate Kibble. He, he's a sophomore right now. He's 6'3", 290 as a sophomore. So you have to think, you know, in those couple of years, he's going to probably sprout up to 6'5", get in that 300-pound range. And it's really funny, you know, we, we talked about uh, Dewberry and Kenyon Green. This is kind of the same thing. We're seeing a, you know, we're seeing it all over again. Now it's it's Dewberry and Kibble. And it just seems like a Tascacita is a pipeline for these off offensive tackles now. Yeah, so when I was looking at the roster, there was some discrepancy. So I'm basically going off of numbers and what I see with my eyeballs because I'm not exactly sure that the num the corresponding names to the numbers I'm seeing are correct as well mm -hmm. as the classification. But when I turned on the film, I was watching number 79 and that boy can move. I thought he was Cam Dewberry before I got a roster in front of me and saw that Dewberry was 75. And then I looked at it and did some research and realized that was the case because that guy is big and he moves. That's what I was about to say. He has really good footwork is what I saw in the film. And part of the reason that I thought he was Dewberry was because of how many, uh, because of how many times they ran the ball behind him and how well he moved when he was pulling or going to the second level and really just how big and mean he was in the trenches. And, you know, like we talked about, and they, they look similar. They're both within two inches and about 15 pounds apart. And on film, 15 pounds is not very easily distinguishable. Right. And, and one's they, just a sophomore. Right. And <laughs> they move very well, and they're very sound with their footwork. And it, it'll be interesting to see what kind of offers he picks up as the season goes on and he goes to camps and gets older and grows into his frame and gets more technique. And one thing that we're going to hear – from Coach Webb later today is about how and how dynamic Otaskasita's quarterback is. He's a dual threat guy, and he's going to really force the hand of a defense because he can also make the deep ball throws. And even when he doesn't make the greatest throw, he has number one Chase Sewell down there as their deep threat, and they love to take shots to him throughout the game. Yeah. And then they also have number six, Tyrus Winfield, who is a speed demon. And 90% of the time I saw him touch the ball, they were trying to get him out on the edges and get him in space. If he gets the corner on you, you're toast. It's yeah. 20, 30 yards minimum. Yeah, no, time. I saw that too. If he gets that corner, it's it's off to the races and good luck with that. Exactly. It's <laughs> what I have here. Good luck underlined three times. Question for you, Jordy. Yeah. Did you see number 99 on a Tascasita's defense? I was just about to go there. Okay, go I'll ahead. Over to the defense. Uh, and, I, and I wrote, not sure – if roster numbers are correct, but I don't doubt them after watching the film. That's what I yes. wrote in my notes. Because the A-gaps are never – you're never going to run A-gap on a Tascacita. He's taken two blockers. This guy gets both A-gaps by himself. Yeah. No, I'm not going to try to pronounce his name. Samu. Uh, same I thing. I, I just called him by his number, number 99. I, I don't want to mispronounce anything or offend anybody. Yeah. So, number 99 – he owns both the A-gaps, no matter who they're playing. I promise you, 6'3", 396 is what he's listed at. Yeah. Yeah, this guy is unreal. I mean, taking up both A-gaps, he's going to force that center and guard to to block him and maybe even take a triple team. And it really just frees up the rest of the defensive line to go one-on-one -on -one or, you know, be left alone to make a play. And I really think that helps Escasita with their defense and, you know, freeing up those linebackers and – just making plays. He was the first guy that stuck out to me as an individual. Obviously, he he pops mm -hmm. off the screen in multiple ways. But um, one thing I noticed about the defense is how 
really instinctive they are. They're, they're jumping yeah. routes. They're they've just got a nose for not necessarily the ball. I mean, just nose for turnovers. They always seem to be in the right place at the right time. I'm pretty sure that they're averaging two or three turnovers a game this far. I know they had three against Allen, and yeah. I know they had two against one of the Klein teams, and I'm not sure how many they had in that other game. So, well, and they're only giving up 16 points per game, and in 6A, that's really good because there's a lot of – especially with the teams that Tascacitas played, there's a bunch of high-profile offenses, and giving up 16 points per game, you have to feel comfortable that you're going to you know, put up more points than that and you're going to come out on top. So we talked earlier about the huge win for Tascacita that snapped a long win streak for Allen. Now their counterpart this week, Geyer, also recently snapped a long win streak of their own. Two weeks ago, they took down their rival, Denton Ryan, who at the time had not lost a regular season game since November of 2014. I think that's roughly 60 games, Tobes. Yeah, that's that sounds about right. That's that's an insane stat. Just to think about teams that Denton Ryan plays or just other teams in the Metroplex that, that they played, that, that just is insane to me. But, you know, that Denton Ryan program has always been very solid. Mm-hmm. They're led on offense by their quarterback, Jackson Arnold, who you might remember from the state game in 2019. Yep. And Denton Geyer's quarterback and now Texas A&M tied in. Eli Stowers went down with a pretty significant knee injury. Yeah, it, it was non-contact, the, so you knew it was bad. It was it was uh it knocked him out of the game and as a freshman, 14, 15 years old, depending on his birthday. Yeah. Uh 14, 15 year old Jackson Arnold is thrown into the game a bunch against a bunch of 17 and 18 year olds. Possibly and, 19, depending on possibly birthday. 19, depending on birthdays again. Yeah. Um, and he relatively held his own. I mean, they got beat there towards the end and as Westlake pulled away. But we talked, and you'll hear about our conversation later, about how really that ended up being a really beneficial thing for Jackson's development and not just his technique and and his skills as a quarterback, but his mental grind and his passion for the game and his passion to win. So we'll Mm -hmm. talk to Coach Webb about that later on. But when you turn on the film, his pocket awareness, you know, he doesn't look like a junior. You would think that the equivalent, I guess the high school equivalent of like a redshirt senior is kind of what it looks like. He's His pocket awareness and his internal clock, really impressive for a junior in high school. Yeah. He stands tall in the pocket. He steps up when he needs to. He's not scrambling at the first chance he gets to. And he steps up and makes throws when he needs to. And he's got plenty of targets to get, his, to get the ball out. My favorite target of his – is their tight end number 13, Dylan Rivero, who goes 6'1", 240. One thing about this guy, when you turn on the film, he refuses to go down. And he's not really, like, looking to juke or avoid tacklers, but rather seems to kind of look out for somebody that would be a potential tackler, runs at them so he can, can hit the hit stick button and run them over and put them in the dirt. You got to oh. love that from your tight end. Yeah, got to love that mentality. And then they also have their junior wide receiver, Sutton Lee, Super athletic guy. When you turn the film on, he always seems to be just just seems to be open. I haven't gotten all 22 views, so I can't really tell you whether it's route running or just finding holes in the zone. But one thing that when he's not open, it doesn't matter because his ball skills are so elite. There's a good chance he he's going to catch it in blanket coverage, anyways. Yeah. There's been a couple touchdown highlights if you go watch it, and you just you can't even see whether or not he caught the ball that's how tight the coverage is and then obviously the referees right there and calls it a touchdown 
and he's just he's got great hands he goes up in high points the ball and he's really just a good security blanket for jackson arnold and that denton guyer offense you know you know who i liked uh on their offense that kind of caught my eye who's that it is six four 190 pound jace wilson wide receiver uh has offers from colorado state kansas you know some decent offers but he just really kind of stuck out to me on film um Tall guy is going to make a play for Jackson if he throws up throws the ball up, and uh, just just overall is a good player. But anyways, moving on to the defense. As for the defense, they're only giving up about ten points a game, and a lot of that has to do with how they fly to the ball. Their linebackers are extremely quick and instinctive, and can react to the ball or ball carrier on a moment's notice. So a lot of that ends up being in the right place at the right time, like a turnover they created in the Denton Ryer game. There was just a botch snap, and they were flying to the ball as soon as they saw it hit the ground, jump on it, go the other way. And I think Denton Ryan was on like the 10, 12-yard line. So there was they were definitely in scoring range and would have at least been able to go up by three or ten, depending on what the score was at the time. One guy that he rotated in on defense, I'm not sure if he starts or if he just comes in every now and then, was number 52. He really caught my eye. He's listed as a sophomore and six foot, 250 pounds. And I don't know if it's possible for a 250-pound kid to be, you know, sneakily strong. But this kid definitely packs a punch when you watch him. He's one of those guys that his first step is forward but also up, and he's putting a move on you and getting his hands on you. And before you know what happened, he's so quick, he's either past you. But on one play in particular, he just puts one hand into the lineman's chest and is able to get a bull rush just like that. And that really caught me off guard watching that. And so as if – as a sophomore, six foot, 250, be really interesting to see how he progresses. And he got, he made some plays. Uh, he, I didn't see him get any tackles, but he definitely ruptured the pocket quite often in that film, that study that we did. They just, they just really get after other, other teams' offenses and uh, fly to the ball, like you said, uh, just very disruptive all over the place. And, you know, they lost a couple guys from last year, especially uh, Deuce Harmon. And, uh, you know, just, some of these guys coming in and stepping up, making a difference, and uh, just very impressive all around. Yeah. So moving into the keys of the game, Tobin, do you really have anything that you're thinking like might tip the scale in one direction or the other? Yeah, I want to see if Denton Geyer's defensive line can get any pressure on the Atascacita quarterback, especially with the Atascacita line with – you know, Cam Dewberry and um, Nate Kibble, the two bookends out there, are they going to be able to get any pressure? And if they can, then that's going to be troublesome for Atascacita because that's really one of the strengths of their team is, you know, protecting that quarterback and letting him have a clean pocket and make throws to their playmakers. I think that's probably my biggest key to the game. It'll be interesting for me to see how Geyer's quicker and sound fundamental defense will fare against the big and strong Atascacita front, kind of like you were talking about. Yeah, And I think just looking off of that, I would think the favor would have to go towards Atascacita. But you never know that sometimes these bigger guys, if they're not sound, they can get beat by these quicker guys. And and the quicker guys are able to make a bigger play. And because your running backs may be able to juke a bigger guy, but they're not going to be able to juke a quicker, twitchier defensive lineman as well. Right. So I could be I could be off base there, but I would give the edge to a Tascacita. But at the same time, whoever can avoid costly turnovers will swing this game. And and a lot of these 
games that I've seen so far this year, whether it's it's always something wacky, whether it's special teams or turnovers, ill-advised and terribly timed turnovers could swing this game either way. And I think that's going to be the key to the game because both of these defenses live off of turnovers. Both defenses can be had. There can be big plays had against them. But when it gets down to the wire, they're a little bit bend but don't break, and they have a nose for the football. They like the big plays and the big and the big boom, and so they're going to step up in the big moment. Which defense does that? And if they're both doing it, who does it at the better time? So that's my key to the game is watching turnovers and, and how each offense reacts to the turnovers. Yeah, I agree 100%. I think we're kind of, you know, seeing this the same way. Um, and I couldn't agree more with your keys to the game, for sure. Hey, everybody. We are joined today by the head coach of the Denton Dyer Wildcats, Coach Rodney Webb. Coach, thank you so much for joining us today. We know you're a busy man, so we really appreciate it. Tobin, we're going to ahead and let you get the first crack at it today. Yeah, Coach, thanks for joining us. First I saw that you held the position of president of the Texas High School Coaches Association. Can you give us some insight to what it was like holding that role? Well, it was an extreme honor for me to have that opportunity. You know, the way uh, the way it works with the THSCA is if you uh, if you get elected to the board of directors, you serve your term on the board of directors. And then after that, uh, you are eligible for nomination. Uh, by the freshman directors on the board. So it's not it's not an office that you run for. So it was extremely, it was an extreme honor for me just to be nominated uh, to be elected president. And then, you know, the opportunity to be elected, um, it, it was, it was a, a complete life-changing moment for me. Uh, you typically serve a year as the president-elect, you serve a year as the president, and then you serve a year as the past president. Uh, but for me, um, the, the coach that preceded me as the president had a, had a uh, situation come up that he was not able to serve. So I served uh, tw- the year 20, uh, the 2018, 20, or 2018, 2019 year for him. And then I served my year and then COVID happened and we did not get a chance to do elections. So I, so everybody just repeated. So I actually served three years. So uh, I tell everybody I'm like the FDR, the THSCA, you know, got to serve three years instead of one. There you go. Uh, yeah, but um, it, was a, it was a high honor to get to lead our association. You know, we've got uh, 20 plus thousand members in the association, the opportunity to lead the convention uh, two of the three years. One of those years was virtual. Um, it was just an awesome opportunity and one that, uh, again, I'll, I'll cherish forever. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, I was a former coach, so I know how big of a deal that is. And, you know, going to the football convention, you know, in San Antonio or Houston, and uh, it's just a really cool experience. And, a, and it's a fun experience too, to get to, you know, mingle with all the other coaches and, uh, you know, pick everybody's brain at those conventions. Uh, my next question for you, when did you first realize coaching was something that you wanted to pursue as your career? And what were some of the factors behind that? Well, for me, uh, I've always loved the sport of football. Uh, and I knew all the way back to high school that I wanted to play as long as I could play. And then when I couldn't play anymore, I wanted to coach. And I knew that when I was in high school, uh, my heroes in high school were my coaches. And even to the point of my two favorite coaches in high school were English teachers. And I was a pretty good English student. So I decided I want to go play football at Tarleton State University. 
and I'm going to major in English. I'm going to get an English degree, and I'm going to be just like my two heroes uh, uh, that 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 coached me uh, and taught me in high school. So um, that's what I did. And so from the time I went to Tarleton State and I played four years, I GA'd a year. I got my English degree, got my teacher certification, and I've never looked back. And I've never once wavered. Um, it, it's what it's what my calling has been. I, I I've never wanted to be in athletic administration. You know, some of the time the AD title comes along with a head coaching job, and I'm certainly right. taking that seriously. But that's not where I get my joy. I get my joy out of coaching kids every single day, and the you know the thrill of the win on Friday night. Uh, that the agony of the preparation, you know, as coaches, we we seem to be during the season, we're miserable about 95% of the time, <laughs> but it's all worth it when you get that payoff of, of a win. And it's all worth it too when 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 you have kids that graduate from your program and they go on to be successful and, and largely because of the experiences they had in, in the program as well. So it's been a very rewarding career for me. And I've never once blinked and thought about doing anything different. 100%. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, Jordy, moving on to a couple of your questions. Yeah, so you talked about seeing your kids be successful when they move on from your program. We try to be unbiased 99% of the time, but in this situation, I have to ask, you recently had two young men leave your program and join the Aggie family over with Coach Jimbo Fisher. Can you kind of speak to the kind of men and athletes that the Aggies are getting on their football team this year? Well, uh, Eli and Deuce are both great kids, and that's what I would say first and foremost. Uh, beyond uh, their, their ability on the field, uh, they're great kids. They're fun to be around. Uh, Eli, in particular, tremendous leadership skill uh, on the field, off the field. He's a tremendous vocal leader. He's a tremendous leader by example. You know, Deuce is the, Deuce is the life of the locker room. He's the He's the funny guy. He's the one that's always got a smile on his face. Um, but both of those kids do things the right way. And so uh, regardless of the impact they have on the field, uh, they are a plus to the Aggie program because of the character and class that they bring to it. And I would say that's the most important thing. But um, as football players, they're both uh, very, very dynamic athletes. And, you know, Deuce is a kid on defense that can do so many things. He's, he can play corner. He can play slot corner. He's a kick returner, punt returner. Um, he's going to be able to help out so many different ways. And then Eli is, is a kid that got recruited as a quarterback and then got moved to tight end. But, but again, athletically, he's got the ability. There aren't that many people that have the ability to go to college and then change positions and be successful. But, you know, he is certainly a kid that's got the frame, the athleticism, the jumping ability, the speed. Um, to be able to switch positions and make an impact. Everything I've read with him moving to tight end, the coaches have just been raving about the athleticism that he's bringing to that position. And so I'm, I'm excited to see what he does there. So Yeah, he's, now, I think he's got a bright future there for sure. Definitely. Now back to the unbiased stuff. <laughs> Coach, when it pertains to leadership, really in all aspects of life, not just sports, a lot of times people refer to changing a culture and it's in those situations, it's always assumed that the culture needed to be burned down to the ground and built back up. But, you know, it didn't necessarily seem like that when you took over Geyer. It seemed like from the outside, at least, a very successful program that seemed culturally speaking in a good spot. Can you kind of speak as to how you handled implementing your culture at a place like Geyer? when you took over the job after Coach Walsh? Yes, it was a very unique situation. Uh, every other head coaching job that I've taken along the way, 
had, had been unsuccessful on the field for a variety of different reasons. Certainly not all because the previous coach didn't do a good job, but for a variety of reasons. Um, every place I've gone has been a matter of uh, changing uh, the winning mentality. Um, this was different. And, and to be honest, it's what really intrigued me. Uh, this will be the, I, I think, I hope at least the last <laughs> uh, stop in my career. And I, I've always thought, wouldn't it be awesome to have an opportunity to take over a winning program? And so I think, you know, coming into Geyer, I think you had to look at all the systems and say, okay, what, what works great? And if it works great, I'm not going to change it. Mm-hmm. And then what doesn't work so great? Um, you know, on the outside looking in, I think there are a lot of programs that you think, well, everything is, is peachy all the time. It's really not. Um, and there, that's no exception to the program at Guard. There were things that could be done better. There were things that need to, needed to be fixed. And so my message to the, the, the staff that I inherited and the, the kids and the parents that I inherited was, we're going to keep the things that have been really good. And if there's something we can improve on or change for the better, we're going to do that too. And so um, that's been a process. Now, you know, being my first year with all of the challenges that COVID presented last year, it made it difficult. Uh, to make inroads um, in terms of uh, changing the things that needed to be changed for the better. That was a, that was a real challenge. So I think in a lot of respects, this is my second year at Gar, but I kind of feel like it's my first year at Gar because we're just now sort of operating in a normal routine. Uh, so, um, but it's been a, it's been a challenge. Um, so many good things here that we try to preserve. Um, but I do think that the bedrock of, of the culture in all of my programs has always been class and character. And that's the one thing that we preach every single day, uh, winning the right way. Uh, you, you can win without having to apologize for winning. And so um, everything that we preach is class and character. So I've got one more and then we'll give it back to Tobin. So we talked about Eli earlier and uh, he went down in that state game, I guess, when was that, two, three years ago? And 2019. I think it was two years ago, 2019. And now your current quarterback was a freshman at the time and had to step in and fill in his shoes at on the biggest stage possible and, you know, relatively held his own. Looking back at it, how much did it help Jackson kind of step into the role as a leader now that he it's his team and Eli's gone? Well, you know, I think – and I wasn't around uh, when when that game happened. I was in the stadium right. that night, but I obviously wasn't on the staff. But Jackson and I have, have talked about that time uh, quite often, and I think – you know, it's sort of lit the fire in his belly that's turned him into the player that he is today. And, and it's a little bit of a, of a fight or flight instinct. And I think, you know, the, the, the thing, my lasting indelible memory of Jackson on that night watching that game was the grit that he showed and the, and the, the determination that he showed. And he, he was not prepared to be in that moment. And most backup quarterbacks aren't, to be fair. Um, but the, the, the fight and the grit and the determination that he showed was, was a, a really lasting memory for me. And um, he will never be put into a more difficult situation than he was put into that night. So for him, uh, it doesn't matter who we play. It doesn't matter how big of a game it is. He's already been there and done it. So I, I think he's ready for every moment that presents itself. Yeah, Coach, uh, you have a top five matchup versus a, task, a tough Atascacita team. What's the biggest threat offensively that Atascacita poses for your defense? Well, I think with Atascacita, the thing that's the most scary is their balance. They're very balanced. They, they've got the ability to spread the field, attack all areas of the field. They have a massive offensive line. 
They've got a quarterback that they're not scared to run. He's a very talented runner. You know, when we have a dual threat quarterback like, like that on the field, you, you plus one everybody. It's like playing with 12. Um, yeah. Their ability to stretch the field, the massive offensive line, and then their diversity in the running game with a quarterback and the tailback make them a very, very tough nut to crack. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it'll be a challenge unlike any other that we've seen in recent memory. Are your kids kind of buying into the whole Houston versus Metroplex vibe or not really? Yeah, we've made a big deal out of that this week. You know, um, again, we just told them it's a playoff atmosphere, a deep playoff level competition at a neutral side at UNT without the implications of a playoff game where the losing team goes home. So we're, we're, we're making it a fun deal. You know, we'll never play them again. They're D1, we're D2. Um, so it's just a fun, it's just a fun game. And, and yeah, we've kind of played that up. I've told our kids, you're not only playing for Geyer and Denton and 5-6-A, you're playing for DFW as well. And, and we want to carry the flag for DFW uh, going into the game this week. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, we talked a little bit about this before we started recording. It's just uh, one of those games where, you know, you get to, you get a little battle tested. And when you get to the playoffs, it uh, really just allows some of those guys that, to be in, they've already been in this tough situation. And so when they get to that point, they're ready for it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's no simulating these, these types of situations. You can't simulate them in practice. You can't simulate them against a bad football team in a dead atmosphere, you know, on a Thursday night or whatever, it's hard to simulate that. So, you know, the Denton Ryan game, that was a huge win for us. And we, you know, when you have to win it the way we did late in the game, heading into overtime, Mm -hmm. uh, that's just money in the bank. And those are experiences that, that will, will benefit us down the road. And, you know, hopefully we get some of that same benefit from the Atascacita game. Hey, Coach, so we were talking about this the other day, and and maybe we just haven't noticed it, but is there like a conscious effort across the state to, you know, get everybody, like we've been talking, get everybody battle-tested in the preseason or the pre-conf or pre-district? Because we noticed, I, I mean, Arlington Martin went, played Midland Lee, and now they've got South Lake Carroll, and then they had Lake Travis in week one. Waco La Vegas had a top ranked team in 4A, I think three of the four first weeks. Has has it been in and I know there's always been big matchups, but the distance they're tra- the distance these teams are traveling now is that new in your opinion, or is that just something we haven't noticed before? Well, I'll tell you what it's born from is it is it's difficult when when you're a top shelf program, whether you're 6A, 5A, 4A, whatever you're a top shelf program, you have a hard time finding people that will play you in non-district. That's just the long and the short of it. So yep. um, a lot of times you see, um, you know, I was at Rockwall during the last realignment and we could not find a week three game. So we scheduled Lake Travis. Um, Lake Travis, you know, that's a, that's a four hour trip. Right. And I wasn't fired up about it. Hank Carter wasn't fired up about it, but they couldn't find a game and we couldn't find a game. So that's who we ended up playing. Uh, that's, you know, the guy in the Tascacita game was the same thing. Coach Walsh couldn't find a week four game. Neither could the guy down there. So, so we ended up, uh, ended up playing, um, uh, guy and Denton Ryan, uh, guy couldn't find a week two game. So I think sometimes it's just the, the better teams just struggle to find games because people don't want to play. You. I gotcha. Right. And then coach, my last question for you, I saw you were inducted into the Tarleton athletics hall of fame. What's, it like receiving an honor like that from your alma mater 
Well, I'll never forget that phone call. Uh, as I tell people all the time, I think it was just a lean year. I think they didn't have any other candidates. They had to, <laughs> they had to dip way down the list, to find somebody to accept accept that. But no, in all seriousness, it was um, I will never forget um, Cody Moore, who's now the head coach of Den Braswell at the time. He was my OC, brand new OC for me at Roy City. And we were driving to Quiznos Subs to get lunch. We were on I-30. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and I'll never forget getting that phone call. And, and I, I was blown away because it had never entered my mind that I would be possibly a candidate for something like that. So, um, you know, again, it, it, uh, you know, those, those kinds of things, because football is the ultimate team sport. I think anytime you get an honor like that, it speaks, uh, largely to the group of guys that you had around you, you know, the success yeah. of the team and especially as an offensive lineman, you know, we perform as a unit. And mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, uh, during my time at Tarleton, we had uh, just outstanding offensive line play. I mean, we were known nationally as being one of the best offensive lines around. And, and I think, you know, we, we're only one of five. And our individual success is born from group success. So um, yeah. I've always been very proud of the guys I got a chance to, to play with, lifelong friends. And um, again, it's something that, that once you're in there, you know, they, they, they can't take it away. So every <laughs> exactly. time I'm down there, at Tarleton, which I don't get down as often as I should, but I always walk in there and look to make sure the plaque's still up, you know, I'll dust it <laughs> off a little bit. You know, I always, I'm always giving them a hard time about, they need to put a little bit brighter light uh, over my plaque so it shines right. a little bit brighter. But they never do that, strangely enough. So, <laughs> Well, Coach, I think it's always uh, interesting, you know, like you said, it's a group of five and, uh, you know, you read about these offensive lines and they literally do everything together, even outside of practice. You know, you go eat dinner, you go eat lunch, uh, you know, everybody's hanging out with each other. And uh, I think that's a, it's, it speaks to, you know, most good offensive lines, they always do that. So that definitely makes sense. For sure. Yeah. So and I guess that's all. Well, I have one question that I always ask our guests, who is the best player you've ever coached or coached against in Texas high school football? Well, I've had the benefit of, of coaching a lot of really good ones. Right. And, and I always say, you know, there, there are some guys out there that have earned me a lot of money over the years, you know, getting uh, getting a higher paying head coaching jobs uh, that had a lot more to do with it than I did as a coach. But the best player that I've ever coached is Jackson Smith and Jigba. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. He's at Ohio State now. He was the Texas player of the year. I, I've never coached a kid like that. Probably will never coach anybody like that again and, and uh, not only was he a great football player but just a great kid a great leader uh, mm-hmm. you loved 100% of everything that kid was about his work ethic his humility um, his his leadership uh, his his um, he, he was a great teammate he was never above anything if, if you asked him if, you, if I was said hey Jackson I need you to play offensive guard tonight he would have said yes sir what number do I need to wear and and so uh, you know, he was he was not only a very special talent, but he was a very special person as well. And as a matter of fact, I just got to go up there Saturday. I went up to Ohio State and watched Ohio State and Oregon. And uh, what a game you know, to get. Yeah, what a game. And they lost the game, but he played great. You know, he caught two touchdowns, had 140 something yards receiving. And, and so he's got a tremendous career ahead of him. Very proud well, of him. And, and, and that receiving core, you know, with him and Garrett Wilson from Lake Travis, and then you got the uh, Chris Olave. Goodness, I couldn't imagine being a DB and having to cover all three of those guys. Yeah, uh, and and I think C.J. Stroud is like number four in the nation right now, passing yards or something. Yeah, you got you got guys like that to get it to. It's it's going to make them look pretty good. Yes, sir. 
But all righty, Coach, we'll let you get back to your day. Good luck tomorrow. And uh, Toby, you got anything else? Uh, just really appreciate it, Coach. Thank you for your time. Absolutely. And if I can ever help connect you guys with anybody else you want to get on the podcast, let me know. I'm happy Thank you, to yes, sir. We will. Thank you so much, Coach. All right, guys. Yeah.